Apostles, chapter 26, Paul's defense before Agrippa. Acts 26, verses 1 to 3, Paul's answers before Agrippa. There being none of Paul's accusers present to present their case first, Agrippa gave Paul leave to speak before the august company. His audience, with the exception of Festus, were familiar with the Jews' beliefs. This is now the third occasion that Luke records the details of Paul's extraordinary conversion. See chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 22, verses 3 to 21. Paul begins his testimony. Paul, stretching forth his hands with the bonds apparent to all, began by saying that he was happy to answer for himself before one who was an expert in Jewish customs and questions. Aware that his answer would be at some length, Luke only gives us a praise of what was said. Paul asked for a patient hearing. He adopted the wise counsel of Proverbs. By long forbearing is a king persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. Proverbs 25, verse 15. Indeed, when Paul has finished, Agrippa does respond, Almost thou dost persuade me to be a Christian. So persuasive was Paul's direct appeal. Paul begins his account from his early years as a youth in Jerusalem. He had been brought up as a strict Pharisee in Jerusalem, as all those Jews who knew him from the beginning could confirm if they would testify. Far from being a heretic, he still believed and taught the hope of the promise made unto the fathers of his nation. His hope was the national hope of Israel, taught in the Jewish scriptures and obtained by a resurrection. Paul does not mention until later that he believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. The issue is not so much the meaning but the application of the Old Testament scriptures. With the same hope as Paul, the twelve tribes served earnestly, the authorised version says instantly, in the temple night and day, as the authorised version margin has it. Though theirs was not a service acceptable to God, because they had rejected their king from heaven. Paul was not a heretic, but entitled to Roman protection just as much as the Jews, for he taught the same things based on the law and the prophets. His statement alludes to the evening and morning sacrifice, and twice daily burning of incense at the time of prayer. Exodus 30, verses 7 and 8. How could the Jews accuse Paul of heresy when he was a Pharisee who believed in the hope of the resurrection? In fact, it is this hope that is the focal point of these four chapters, Acts 23 to 26. Resurrection, the main issue. Why should the resurrection of Jesus be such a stumbling block to them? Why should Agrippa find the idea of the resurrection of dead ones, the fathers and Jesus Christ, so incredible? Here we come to the crux of the whole matter. 
The doctrine of the resurrection was a subject of intense debate among the Jews of that era. In recounting first-century debate on this topic, Martin Goodman wrote, By the first century of the Christian era, a belief in some sort of afterlife after death had become widespread amongst Jews. At least in Judea, despite lack of agreement even on the basic questions. That's by Martin Goodman in his book Rome and Jerusalem, page 256. The debate continued. In the 3rd century AD it is recorded, All Israel have a share in the world to come, and these are they that have no share in the world to come. He that says there is no resurrection of the dead, quoted by Martin Goodman as above. The Lord's resurrection is at the very centre of the only true hope. One of the first things Paul taught was how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Without the resurrection of our Lord, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. This he says in the first of Corinthians chapter 15. Brother L. G. Sargent wrote of the resurrection of the Lord, Such a centre of faith can be like the hub of a wheel. The whole life can revolve around it and keep in balance. This in his book A Sound Mind, page 94. Extending this thought, let the wheel of our lives turn about to the hub. Christ, crucified and raised again, is the centre from which radiates the spokes of that faith which overcomes the world and gives us the victory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ must dominate our lives as it did the life of our Apostle who wrote, That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, literally, out of dead ones. Philippians 3, verse 10 to 11. Saul's persecution of the saints. Paul admits to Agrippa that he once did many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ, even going so far as to shut up many of the saints in prison. We note that Paul's description of the brotherhood is not as Christians, but as saints or sanctified ones by forgiveness. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved, Peter says in Acts 4, verse 10 to 12. When the saints were put to death, he gave his voice against them. The phrase literally means, I laid down a pebble. By metonymy, the word signifies a vote, as in the Revised Version. Compare Revelation 2, verse 17. In so saying, Paul indicates that as Saul of Tarsus, he was once a member of the Sanhedrin. This would explain why the high priest had entrusted to Saul his authority and commissioned him to arrest the Lord's disciples in Damascus, 
and bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Lesser cases were dealt with in local synagogues, where the usual thirty-nine stripes could be administered. Those who would not recant were bound, imprisoned, and put to death. In his fierce anger against the saints, Saul persecuted them into foreign cities, he says. From the Greek, the word persecute has the meaning of causing flight to other cities. His campaign to force the saints to blaspheme by renouncing Jesus Christ would meet with little success. This failure only served to aggravate him further until he determined to apprehend the saints at Damascus, where probably not a few had fled. Saul's Conversion Against this background, the dramatic conversion of Saul is all the more remarkable and compelling. The only possible explanation for such a change in direction is that his story of being struck down at midday by great light far brighter than the sun as his party approached Damascus is true. What is also therefore true is that his conversion was by divine calling, his teaching was by divine revelation, and his words were spoken as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. It is not to be wondered at, then, that Peter described the Apostle Paul's writings as Scripture in the second of Peter chapter 3, verse 16. The Roman Catholic Church claims that it decided the canon of Scripture. Not so. It was the Spirit in the Apostles that guided the complete Word of God, so that if any man should add or take away from it, he commits a serious offence that will add the plagues written in the Apocalypse upon his head, or take away his part from the tree of life, as we have it in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. All Saul's companions on the road to Damascus fell down at the bright light and heard the voice. But only Saul looked up and saw the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. He alone understood the word, Arise, and the Lord's instructions spoken in the Hebrew language that had been written over the cross. The Hebraisti of Acts 9, verse 6 and 7. Yes, it had been hard for Saul to kick against the pricks, like an ox kicking against the goad that drove him on. This simile is proverbial in classical Greek for a man who fights against his destiny. In some measure we all experience the same pricks, though perhaps not so acutely, for the words of the wise are as goads, and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd, we read in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11. Saul's conscience had been greatly troubled. Unable to refute the teaching of those he regarded as uneducated men, his response had been to suppress his conscience with extreme hatred and anger. Whenever we see this kind of reaction, we can be sure that deep down, the extremist knows he is wrong.
As Brother Sargent wrote in his book A Sound Mind, page 10, Fury of zeal may betray a hidden insecurity, the friction of a divided mind. And so may we never be guilty of the same. Rise up and stand. Saul continued by recounting to Agrippa how he was told to rise and stand. He had, in a figure, undergone a death and resurrection in gaining a light, lively hope, in much of the same way as Daniel and Ezekiel, in Daniel 10 and Ezekiel 2. And like Ezekiel, as a minister and a witness, he was sent to a rebellious people that hath rebelled against me. His perseverance in the face of adversity came from his Lord's words, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send, Greek apostello, thee. Therefore, like Jeremiah, Paul had total confidence in his eventual acquittal. Saul had been appointed a servant, literally an under-rower, the authorised version minister, by none other than Jesus Christ. This idea takes us back to the servant prophecies of Isaiah, where of the servant of the Lord it is written, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, verse 6. No wonder that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, felt able to apply to himself several servant passages that foretell the work of Christ, as he continued in the work the Lord had called him to. You might like to compare Isaiah 49 verse 6 and Acts 13 verse 47 and a number of passages similarly. In his recounting his experience with the risen Lord to Agrippa, Paul gives a fuller account of his Lord's words than has previously been recorded. He is to open the eyes of understanding of the Jews and to turn Gentiles from darkness to light in part fulfilment of several passages in Isaiah. To the Ephesian saints, he wrote, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Thus they were enabled themselves to be light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light, revised version, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord as we read in Ephesians 1 and 5. The gospel of Christ will deliver us from the power of Satan unto God, that we may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. The Satan, or adversary, was the power of sin both in the rulers of Judea and the Gentile world of idolatry, whose priests presented themselves as an angel of light. These sought to either corrupt the truth or stamp it out. In Christ and in him alone is the forgiveness of sins and inheritance of the promises to the faithful who are, like Abraham, 
the Father of the faithful. Romans 4, verse 13 to 16. We have seen earlier that Peter taught the same message at Pentecost when he said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, to inherit the promise of salvation and the gift of eternal life. This gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, Paul says in Romans 1, verse 16. Consequently, Paul had testified both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ we have been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, as we read in Colossians 1, verses 13 to 14. Preaching to Gentiles Continuing his defence, Paul says he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but began preaching the gospel of Christ immediately at Damascus, Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and then the Gentile world. It was because he taught Gentiles to repent and turn to God that the Jews caught him in the temple and set about to kill him. Jews had become so exclusive that they opposed to the death the inclusion of Gentiles in the inheritance, even though God's promise to Abraham had said, In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. By the help God had provided through Claudius Lysias and his soldiers, however, he continued unto this day. Despite more or less continuous persecution, God worked in him mightily, he says in Colossians 1 verse 29. He was able to say, I can do all things through Christ, some texts read him, that is God, which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4 verse 13. How strange that inclusion of Gentiles was the cause of Jewish hatred. Yet those same Jews expected to be protected by the Gentile authorities. How remarkable their opposition when Paul only taught those things which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. The Old Testament contains the Gospel. The New Testament is a commentary on the Old, not a replacement of it. It is therefore essential for us to read and understand both. Messiah's suffering is particularly to be found in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, but not exclusively so. As Jesus himself explained to Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. Acts 26, verse 24 to 32. Response of Festus and Agrippa. Paul was now in full flight, earnestly presenting the scriptures. But Festus had heard enough. He loudly interrupted, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. As if the dead 
could ever live again. Festus would have been briefed on the Jews' hope for a Messiah on taking office, and there had been false messiahs who were a threat to Roman rule. But a messiah who must suffer and die was senseless. This reaction was only to be expected, for Isaiah had prophesied that it would be so. Isaiah 52 verse 15. Also Paul had written to Corinth a few years earlier, We preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 Festus thought Paul had thrown away his life for a dream. It was obvious to Festus that Paul was no threat to anyone. His much learning had mentally unbalanced him. The same accusation of madness had been made to Jesus also in Mark 3 verse 21 and other places. Festus' phrase, much learning, is a testimony to Paul's knowledge of the word and skill in debate. Paul, unflustered by the interruption, answered quietly and soberly, he was an ambassador in bonds for the King of Heaven, and as such was at ease in King Agrippa's company. He spoke freely and confidently, as I ought to speak, he says in Ephesians 6 verse 19 to 20. No, it wasn't madness. His words were of truth and reason. The very opposite of madness, the Greek mania. King Agrippa, before whom Paul spoke so freely or boldly, knew of these things. The ministry, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus had not been done in a corner, but publicly in Jerusalem. It had involved the priests, the council, the crowd who cried crucify him, and the Roman governor. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Paul could easily establish the sufferings of Christ, his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins under the new covenant, and the coming resurrection from among the dead, from the writings of the prophets. But Agrippa wasn't going to give him the chance. Paul's words, like his letters, were weighty and powerful, and Agrippa knew it. His conscience would not be easy to live with if he gave Paul a hearing. Agrippa replied, almost, literally, in a little, i.e. in few words, thou persuadest me to be a Christian. His phrase is perhaps a play on Paul's change of name as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul responded, I would to God, both in a little and in much, not only thou, but also all these hearing me this day, should become such as I am, except these bonds. Agrippa was caught between his standing and reputation with the Roman authorities and his profession of their religion to the Jews. The embarrassed Agrippa suddenly realised that Paul had turned the tables on him. Now it was he who was on trial. The hope of Israel was so real to the Apostle Paul that his mind was lifted up above his surroundings. In his mind, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 17 and 18 Conclusion of the Review The King rose up to conclude his review of Paul's case. The Governor, Benice, and the rest of the court also rose. Festus and Agrippa, probably with Benice, went aside to discuss what might be done, what charge might be formulated to send with the prisoner to Nero. They decided that this man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds, confirming the conclusion of Lysias in Acts 23 verse 29. Later Nero too would conclude that the Jews did not have a case. No doubt Festus' report to Caesar would include his recommendation that the prisoner should be acquitted. Probably the centurion Julius courteously treated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself, because he knew this, Acts 27 verse 3. How significant that both Festus and Agrippa recognised that Paul was innocent of the charges made against him. The gospel of Christ was not illegal under Roman law. It was the Jews' violent opposition that was illegal. In fact, the prisoner might have been set free had he not appealed unto Caesar. But it's too late now for that. Festus might offend the emperor if he set Paul free. As one writer put it, no sensible man with hopes of promotion would dream of short-circuiting the appeal to Caesar unless he had specific authority to do so. And that by Sherwin White in his book Roman Law, page 65. Luke's account of the proceedings is so detailed that he may well have been in court with Paul. But how did he know what had been said by Festus and Agrippa when they went aside to discuss the case privately? Was someone present converted by Paul's answer before King Agrippa? It seems most likely, but Luke doesn't say. At Corinth, Gallio had given a charter of freedom to preach until a higher court might rescind his decision. Eventually the test case would go all the way to the Emperor himself, from whom Paul won freedom to worship and preach without interference. It is true that Nero's attitude would change later, as Peter implies, but by that time it was too late to stop the progress of the truth. It was already too far spread to be stamped out. The first of Peter 4 verse 16. Without Luke's account in Acts, we would have no knowledge of these first vitally important 40 years, leading to the overthrow of Jerusalem and the Temple, that effectively removed all Jewish opposition and even the Lord itself. <laughs>